On this episode of Blue 58, it's a mid-season free agent bonanza in Green Bay. The Packers signed two, count them, two players on the same day. I know, right? We'll break down what the moves mean for the team and how they could reflect a little bit on the league as a whole. Then why I think you should pay special attention to how the Packers start their drives. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast so far of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Mirnick. Very excited to be with you here today. What a day it has been. A very interesting day in Green Bay, so let's dive right in. What's fun about days like this is I actually had an, an entire different show planned out that I wanted to do, but because there is news in season, we get to scrap all that. Actually, save it for later. We're not going to scrap it all. Talk about this instead. And then bring up those other topics again later on uh, at a time that is more fitting and a little bit more slow. Never run out of content. There's always stuff to talk about if you're willing to look for it. Today we don't have to look too far because uh, we have two free agent signings in Green Bay. One on the regular 53-man roster, the other to the practice squad. But we're counting it just the same. Two signings is two signings. And it's interesting that this should come up now because just last week, one week ago today... We were talking about how Brian Gutekunst could and would respond to injuries. I said, I I guess at a fair bit of length last week, that the Packers' run of good health wasn't going to last. And that's just not being a naysayer, that's just being a realist. Injuries were going to happen, and they happened on Sunday. Muhammad Wilkerson got hurt, Nick Perry got hurt, Brian Bulaga got hurt, and boy, that right side of the offensive line is going to be something this week. And now it appears that Devon House is not was not hurt on Sunday, but has been, in fact, hurt apparently all along. We got to see how Brian Gutekunst would respond to those things, and he responded quickly, decisively, and with an in-season upgrade at quarterback. We will dive right into that right now. So Devon House heads to injured reserve. That was a bit of a surprise, but today the Packers hosted several free agents uh, from a variety of positions. Um, Two tryouts or four tryouts. Tryouts always happen on Tuesday or seem to always happen on Tuesday, and teams will make their corresponding roster moves there. The Packers, in fact, go that route. Uh, They had a variety of cornerbacks in for workouts today. We could talk about each of them, and I was figuring on having to talk about a little bit about each of them because it wasn't clear when the signings, if any, was going to happen, but we don't have to wait that long because the Packers settled on apparently their first choice, Bashad Breland. Now, Breland's an interesting guy because you'll remember he was one of the objects of fans' desire this offseason. A lot of people talked about wanting him in Green Bay. A lot of people thought he was one of the top corner options on the market for a lot of the offseason. He wasn't like one of the ultra-elite guys, probably wasn't even in the Kyle Fuller range, who the Packers also tried to sign. But he was pretty good, pretty solid player. Uh, And, you know, here's an example of the kind of solid player that he was, courtesy of Pro Football Focus. Their stats here, uh, on 69 throws into his coverage area in 2017, he allowed just 49.3% completion rate, the passer rating just 75.6 on those throws. So pretty good. The knock on Breland is the knock on a lot of these cornerbacks that are going to be on the market at this point of the year. He's not a tremendous athlete. Ran mid four fives at the combine in 2014. That's probably a reason that he slid in the draft. He was a fourth round pick and played the first four years of his career with the Washington Redskins. 
his agility numbers were pretty good. Uh, not not outstanding, but pretty good uh, within the guidelines that the Packers have traditionally looked for from their defensive backs. But I think what is really interesting about Breland is how often he gets his hands on the ball. We've talked a lot about the ball hawk index uh, more this season than in past seasons. And the Packers have been short of guys who are able to get their hands on the ball on defense, throughout their defense. You don't care about that so much among your defensive line, although sacks factor into that formula. But the way to really rack up ball hawks in a hurry is to defend passes and intercept passes. Breland does both of those things pretty well. Started 58 games for the Redskins over the four seasons he was there. He intercepted eight passes, just one in his final season there, but he averaged just under 15 passes defensed per season. Those passes defensed alone, on average, so 14.8 was his per season average while he was there, that number would have put him at the top of the Packers class last year in the Ballhawk Index. Demarius Randall led the team last year with 12, uh, that combined measure of interceptions, passage defense, and sacked. Just on passage defense alone, Breland would have led the Packers. So, a good addition to the secondary. How does he fit in? Well, that's the interesting question here, because presumably, on the depth chart, he's maybe fourth or fifth, just at first blush. You've got Kevin King, when healthy, Tremont Williams, Jair Alexander, and Josh Jackson, for sure. At number five is Breland, maybe, but does it really matter that he's number five? I wouldn't say it does, because Mike Pettin has been very fluid with the personnel groupings that he's used when he's had as few as five defensive backs on the field, and he has also shown a propensity to go with six or even seven defensive backs on the field at one time. So I'm not super worried about the theoretical number of corners on the depth chart ahead of Breland here. So not a big worry there. I think he's going to fit in just fine, at least from that perspective. Uh, I'm not sure if he'll be able to go this weekend. I would be surprised if he did, but you never know. It, it would be He's a veteran player, so who knows? Another question related to this, and I'm not sure there's an answer here, is why the Packers held on to Devon House to this point. There's a, this, the old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. Is That is true, and that's probably true among fans more than it is among football executives. But when it comes to those executives, it may be just as true that familiarity breeds a little bit of complacency. I think it's possible that just having a guy around who knows your system and is familiar with what you do and whom you are familiar with may be a bit of a false sense of security, may bring a false sense of security sometimes. It may make you overconfident in the guys that you have. Just because you know somebody doesn't mean that he can't be upgraded. And it was a little bit surprising to see House continue to get opportunities. Not all of the touchdowns that he has given up or completions or whatever he's given up this year have been his fault. But you still scratched your head sometimes and wondered why the Packers weren't a little bit more upgrade, uh, aggressive to upgrade their spot to this point. You also wonder if there's reason perhaps to be a little bit more concerned about Kevin King. I've seen that floated online a couple different places, and I'm not sure I buy that line of thinking. In theory, sure, this could mean that King's injury was a little bit worse than we've been led to believe, and he could be out a little bit longer. But it may also be true that the Packers are just willing 
to let him heal a little bit more slowly now that they were able to acquire some quality depth at this point in the season. So I'm not sure if this injury makes me more concerned about Kevin King, although we will have to kind of monitor that going forward. Still, uh, there are a couple other things that I want to talk about when uh, when we think about this this signing. First, again, it says a lot about Brian Gutekunst that he didn't just promote one of the guys that he had on the practice squad, good though they may be. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about Tony Brown, the Alabama cornerback, who is now on the practice squad. He's a great fit for the Packers and somebody we talked about in the lead up to the draft is somebody who would be a close to ideal fit athletically for what they like to do, given his size and speed and athleticism combination. In past years, he probably would have gotten the call here, getting promoted up to the active roster, but that's not what happens here. Breland is not the athlete that Brown is, but he has shown that he can be a good football player. And at a certain point, I think being a good football player should win out over being a tremendous athlete. You can figure out ways to use guys who are good football players, but less good of athletes. A lot easier than you can find a way to use a guy who's a tremendous athlete but can't play football worth a lick. I think we saw that with Jeff Janis for several years. The only place they could find for him was on special teams. And by the way, look where Jeff Janis is now. He's not exactly um, turning away calls for work. This was not supposed to be a shot at Jeff Janis, but I guess that's what it turned out to be. Semi-related to all this is that there will still be further questions about who takes Muhammad Wilkerson's spot on the 53-man roster. So what's the holdup there? It's a little bit surprising that the Packers haven't made a move already to send him to injured reserve, though that I'm, I'm sure may be coming. But that will be another roster spot that opens up here. So keep an eye on the guys that were in town for workouts today who were not defensive backs. So you've got tackles Anthony Coyle, who ended up signing to the practice squad. We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, tackle Gerhard DeBeer and uh, another tackle Tony Garcia, as well as defensive lineman Quentin Dial. Interesting that his name is floating around there. Uh, wouldn't think that they would need to bring him in for a workout. I would think you have all the Quentin Dial tape that you need and information that you need at this point, but whatever. I guess it doesn't cost anything to, to bring him in for a workout. Speaking of the offensive line, it's time to talk about the offensive line for a bit because I think the offensive line has been a pretty significant story so far this season. Arguably, the offensive line was one of the reasons Aaron Rodgers got hurt in week one, though I don't know if that particular situation was on the offensive line. He sure did get hit a lot in the first half in addition to the one that banged up his knee. But on the whole, offensive line has been a question mark, particularly the right side of the offensive line. Well, it's going to be an even bigger question mark heading into this weekend for a couple reasons. First, Brian Bulaga hurt his back. And although we haven't seen a lot about whether or not he's going to be good to go for Sunday, even if he is, he's going to have an unfamiliar companion to his left because the Packers are preparing, according to ESPN's Rob Domovsky, to start Byron Bell at right guard on Sunday. Justin McRae is dealing with a, with a soldier, shoulder injury. Uh, Lucas Patrick was not good. And so this falls to Byron Bell. Bell is not a great player. He may not even be a good player. But if there's any encouragement here at all, it's that he gets to play at guard. He is a guard. Playing him at tackle is a bad idea. And we talked about that when the Packers signed him 
is not a, a, a guy who can play in space and be an effective tackle. So if they're going to play him at all, at least he's playing on the offensive line. Another option potentially down the road on the offensive line is this other free agent the Packers signed today. Let's talk for a second about Anthony Coyle. He is a guard, although we described him as a tackle just a little bit ago. The reason we described him as a tackle, in part because we were reading a tweet that said that he was a tackle, but he played both right and left tackle in college. Went to Fordham, uh, go blocks of granite, home collegiately of Vince Lombardi. Uh, oh, the Fordham Rams, right? Small, small school. Uh, did away with their football program for a long time. They brought it back recently. Um, that's beside the point. Uh, six foot four, 298 pounds. So, you know, pretty typical characteristics physically for a relatively small school, um, offensive lineman tackle, uh, played left tackle and right tackle in college was two time all Patriot league player. He'll wear number 71 for the Packers. This is an interesting signing to me because the Packers are continuing their technique of taking a college tackle and trying to turn the them into a professional guard. To say nothing of their respective qualities as players, this is virtually identical to Cole Madison, who remains away from the team for reasons that have still not been entirely explained. Um, You know, a guy who's a little bit on the short side, a little bit on the light side for a tackle, moving inside and trying to become a guard. I don't expect that we'll see Anthony Coyle at any time this season. I sure hope not. Hopefully McCray struggle, though his early season has been, can get back to full health and we can have the normal opening day starters on the offensive line. But Coyle is an interesting prospect and one that uh, will be interesting to see the Packers grow over the the next few years, Uh, hopefully over the next few years. It is interesting to see them continue to pursue this idea of converting tackles to guards, and I think it's illustrative illustrative. I think it illustrates, making up words and stuff in this podcast, great episode so far. Um, I think it illustrates a larger issue that the NFL is having with the offensive line. Some people have described it as an offensive line crisis, but I think it may be too strong of a word. The the, The NFL as a whole, whether it's a crisis or not, is having trouble finding offensive linemen who can play at an NFL level. You know, people often say that quarterback is so different from college to the NFL, but the same is true for offensive linemen. There is a just a lack of decent prospects coming out of college for a couple different reasons. There's a couple different reasons that it's hard to develop these offensive linemen to an NFL level in college. For one reason, you've got to talk about size. So a guy like Anthony Coyle can get by with being six foot four and 298 pounds playing in the Patriot League. But when you play in the NFL or even one of the Power Five conferences like the Big Ten, the size is a lot different. And even if you look at something like the Big Ten, which is known for having good-sized offensive and defensive linemen, the difference between a Big Ten lineman and an NFL lineman is, no pun intended, huge. There just aren't as many big-time talented college prospects that are physically big enough to play in the NFL as there are just big NFL players. So we'll use an example from right up the road from where I am. With all due respect to the University of Toledo, the closest good college football team 
is the University of Michigan. And sorry, Bowling Green, you're almost as close as Toledo. You're not there with Michigan. On their roster right now, Michigan has 20 defensive linemen on the roster. Just two of those 20, 10%, are over 300 pounds. Currently, the Packers have five defensive linemen on their roster, and all five, if you round Dean Lowry up, are 300 pounds or larger. That's a big difference. Being able to block somebody that big is something is not a skill that everybody has. It's not an ability that everybody has. And it's a problem that a lot of college prospects don't have to to deal with because there just aren't a lot of big-time college guys that are that big. It's silly to think about because it's so obvious or it seems so obvious, but it's it's a real problem. Then you have issues with scheme. It's a lot, again, like quarterbacks. The NFL game is so different schematically from what most players get the opportunity to play in college. This is not a reflection or an an assessment of the quality of the play styles of the college game versus the NFL game, because I think that you're seeing a lot of the college game trickle up into the NFL. And in a lot of ways, I think the, the, the college game is better at working to the strengths of the players that they have. But by and large, the NFL is different enough from college that it is difficult to find guys who can do the things that you need from an NFL lineman in the college game. It's on coaches, of course, to adapt and to figure out what their players can do. But that's a lot easier said than done. So that's why scouts are always using the measurables to really determine who is good. That's why guys like Tony Mandarich, if we want to invoke that name, get a lot of um, attention, even though their relative merits as an NFL player or prospect may be a little bit suspect. You see that year in and year out. A lot of the guys who bust in the first round as offensive linemen are there just because they're the six foot five, six foot six, six foot seven guys who can run a 40 yard dash in about five seconds and they're doing great on the bench. It's not necessarily a reflection of what they can do from a scheme perspective, but at least, at least they're big enough to handle the guys that they're going to be facing in the NFL. So what does this mean for the Packers? Well, I think the one thing I want you to take away from this conversation or digression or whatever you want to call it is that maybe you should consider being a little bit easier on the Packers offensive line. Sure, it's not great, particularly the right side of the offensive line right now. But on the whole, this is not struggles with the offensive line are not something that are is unique to the Packers. This is something that a lot of NFL teams are dealing with just because there aren't a lot of great offensive line prospects out there. So keep that in mind as we look at these signings as and as we look at what uh, what the Packers do heading heading into this weekend. While I've got you here, I want to spend a couple minutes talking about something that I've been somewhat obsessed with. Uh, over the course of this season so far, and really dating back to last year. This is the sort of thing, and I, I fully acknowledge that this may not be news or even that interesting to a lot of you, but I think it's it's a tiny little facet of the game that I think is worth, worth watching and ex- exploring and paying attention to. It's the idea of a drive starter. A drive starter. These plays that teams go to just to get a little bit of momentum going on a particular drive. I became aware of this last year in the Dallas game 
if, if you remember last year at the end of that game, the Packers were trailing or tied. I forget the exact game situation. There wasn't a lot of time left. And they had one drive to go to go down and score. They needed to get it done on that one drive because they weren't going to get another shot to do it. And on the NFL Network's turning point series that they do, Aaron Rodgers talked after the game about that very first play. He called it a drive starter. Forget even what the play was in particular, but he referred to it as a play that you're just looking to do to pick up a few yards and get into a rhythm at the start of a drive. And since he's said that, I haven't been able to not pay special close attention to the first play that the Packers run on a given drive. There's an interesting three-drive stretch in the first half of the Packers' most recent game, that Travis Shamakri that happened in Washington. Um, you have three interesting drive starters on drives four, five, and six of the game for the Packers. The first one, Packers drive number four. Uh, they run a toss to Jamal Williams off the left side. That was an audible, probably one of those kill calls that we talked about Aaron Rodgers, maybe not executing perfectly last week or the week prior, I guess, against the Vikings. And he picks up five yards. Uh, on second and five, the Packers have a chance to go deep because second and short is the most versatile, most valuable drive for an offense because they have the opportunity to be a little bit creative while still facing a third and manageable. Uh, they get a defensive pass interference there. Uh, they run a little comeback route to Randall Cobb, picks up another first down, and then suddenly they're in business. Aaron Jones picks up another first down on his first carry. Uh, they run a little bit of interesting stuff to pick up eight yards, blah, blah, blah. Down the field they go. They end up kicking a field goal. But this entire drive started with one of those comfortable plays that they ran, something they knew could get them some yards. And away they go. They're in business. Packers drive, though, number five. What happens? They start on first and 10 and they don't execute. This is a drive that starts on their own 45, so maybe Aaron Rodgers is getting a little bit greedy here. He holds the ball too long, and suddenly the Packers are in second and 17. They didn't have a successful drive starting play, and although they end up picking up a first down, they have to punt. J.K. Scott sticks the Redskins deep, um, but it was an unsuccessful drive for the Packers. They do get the ball back a little bit later uh, with just about... Uh, just. Uh, a few, well, no, this wasn't the one that was right towards the end of the half. They get the ball back on their own 24, and the Packers immediately go to, again, one of these reliable drive-started passes. Jimmy Graham runs a quick out, picks up six yards, and three plays later, the Packers are in the end zone on that long Geronimo Allison play. 64-yarder, great play, exciting play, but it was on one of these drives where they had a successful drive-starter. I have not been able to stop looking at these. I think it's so interesting, and it's just a little facet of the game that you can see. Once you see it's there, you can't unsee it. You can't unnotice these things. It's just a little bit of a little wrinkle that teaches you so much about how this game works. Uh, Mike McCarthy talks about playing, calling plays in sequence and how different plays work off of each other. That's true from a schematic perspe perspective, but also just from a simple down and distance perspective. If you can pick up four, five, or six yards on first down of on the first play of your first drive, that sets up your entire drive for success. Two out of these three drives that we just looked at right here ended in scores for the Packers. That's 10 points on the board. Makes a big difference in the game. 
And if you look throughout the rest of the game, drives where they didn't start well on their first play did not result in a lot of points. Something to keep an eye on, something to watch as you increase your football watching abilities. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening uh, to this show, uh, this episode, and every episode. You can find us, as you always do, at thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter. Don't hesitate to reach out via email at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. If you are kind enough to support us on Patreon, we are very thankful to you. Thank you for your willingness to do so. Give us $1 per month, and we will turn it into great things here at the Power Sweep uh, easiest of which is just hosting this podcast and uh, we appreciate all the those of you who have agreed to do that with us if you'd like to look great while you support the power sweep i suggest buying one of our t-shirts from teespring we just added a new one this week it looks great i think i'm going to pick one up myself and these are high quality beautiful t-shirts give us a review on itunes if you don't mind either that helps other people find the show we do love to hear from you any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better it helps all of us become smarter packers fans and as i always say smarter packers fans are better packers fans and better packers fans are what we all want to be i've been your host john meerdink we'll see you next time on blue 58